You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead, the story of her original screenplay by Shoshana Milgram. Okay, well, here I am uh, without my actors, and I hope everybody enjoyed the performance last night. What I'm going to be doing today is, uh, of course, welcoming you back to the worlds of the Fountainhead and saying something about that original screenplay and what it is as opposed to other versions of the Fountainhead you know, because there's the novel, that's 1943. There's the film, the finished film, the filmed film, 1949. And maybe some of you know the notes, I'll tell you some about, something about the notes, but there's also the original screenplay she wrote, the first version of the screenplay which is different from the novel, different from the finished film, and sometimes you, can, you almost need to write down notes to separate them from each other. And one of the reasons I think it's interesting to look at the original screenplay is not just because it's twice as long as the one that eventually got filmed, and in the current time, we could, there, there, there could have been you know, a longer film with an intermission, or there could have been a miniseries or a streaming or something like that. Back then, it had to be two hours. And so what you saw last night, plus about you know, the same amount, could not really practically have been filmed and presented at that time. But I think it's really interesting to see what Ayn Rand did when she adapted her novel the first time, later making changes. And I think it's especially interesting because you might think that such a film couldn't have come about at all given what Ayn Rand herself thought about Hollywood at that time. And I'm gonna read you something which possibly you've read before, but she, in the 1920s, 1930s, first time she was in California, she was not optimistic about the prospects of working in the industry. When she had been growing up in Russia, she saw American films, she was very excited. And of course she saw German films too, which were very good. But when she actually arrived in Hollywood and saw how they were made, saw how some of her good ideas did not look workable to them, she had a much more negative view. And in fact, her view of filmmaking, as you'll see, pertained to her view of second-handedness at that time. Here's something that she wrote in a note to herself in 1935. The movies have produced no great work of art, no immortal masterpiece to compare with the masterpieces of other arts. And here, you know, we know that she loves Siegfried, so I think she's thinking mostly of Hollywood films. Why? Because the movies are not an art? Rubbish. But the reason is because those in charge do not create what they think is good, but what they think others will think is good. Because those in charge have no values of their own and refuse to have, but accept blindly anything and everything approved by someone else, anyone else. The movies are the perfect example of collective ideology and of living for others. All right, now she did write that to herself, and I'm sure that it was at a time when it looked to her as if first-handedness was not what the movies wanted, but nonetheless, that's a pretty strong statement. She saw the movies themselves, the Hollywood movies, as a classic example of second-handedness. So what happened? Well, as you know, she did eventually agree to sell the rights, and she wrote the screenplay that you've seen, and she also wrote the one of which you've seen part of it um, enacted here. And this one was not filmed as such. And I'm speaking here on July 4th, 2022, 
The morning after, we've seen scenes from that first screenplay staged. Now, I'm sure you understand that she was writing them for the screen and we were not going to have the projections and so on, but you were actually going to see things. So you haven't actually seen the first half of that imagined movie. But the words, you know, those are her words. I didn't, you know, add to her words, didn't subtract much. So what's the background? How did she come to write that? And what is it like apart from, the, from what you've already seen? Okay, what you've already, you've already seen part of it performed, I'll tell you about some of the rest. So, just to remember, and I'd like to make this point in general, if you've seen the 1949 film released by Warner Brothers, you haven't seen the film she originally wrote and had in mind. The original screenplay had scenes, as you know, that did not appear in the 1949 film, and it doesn't have some scenes that did appear in the 1949 film, and there are also changes in the order and in the structure between the original screenplay and the one that was eventually filmed. Well, I've seen the 1949 film many times, and I'm familiar with the production history, but that's not actually my subject today. Uh, today I'm going to concentrate on the original screenplay and how it came to be. Now, I've already talked about this a few years ago at Ocon in a talk, which I'm pretty sure is up on YouTube, filming the Fountainhead, Ayn Rand's first plan. So there's... Some of the historical story is the same, but what I'm going to give you today is more from the actual screenplay so that we can see the choices she made. And I think it's also a privilege to do so after having heard the words spoken aloud. So, how did it all happen? On October 12th, 1943, we should celebrate this day, I think, um, Ayn Rand went to lunch and returned to find herself $50,000 richer. Her literary agent had been negotiating to sell the Fountainhead film rights. And she had been told to moderate her request, and she said, no, I will... Someday the rights will be worth a lot more than 50,000, but if I sell it for 50,000, I will feel that I've done okay. And Warner Brothers agreed, and her agent had called to tell her. Now, why did she agree to sell the film rights to begin with, given what she thought about Hollywood? Because there were many, many reasons against the idea of selling the film rights. One is... Second-handedness. She had a negative assessment of Hollywood's artistic integrity. She thought that the people making movies lacked the ability or the will to make independent judgments and to stand by them. So the question is, how are people like that going to film The Fountainhead? And there was another reason not to sell the film rights, which was that she'd had unhappy experiences with other dealings with other people getting their hands on her work. Her experiences with the Broadway production of Night of January 16th, that was miserable. Changes were made without her consent, and she was even charged for them. There had to be lawsuits, okay? So the ex which she won, but nonetheless, not fun. Uh, the experience didn't inspire confidence in the prospect of working along with other people on her own work. And a third reason was that she'd had recent experience with the We the Living play. She'd adapted We the Living for the stage under the title The Unconquered. And you can read in the book edited by Robert Mayhew a few different versions, but there's a whole story there. And she considered the whole thing to have been a mistake. This experience was also miserable. It took months out of her life. It took months out of her time writing The Fountainhead. It required numerous drafts. It required working with an unsuitable producer and problematic actors, and it yielded financial and critical failure. 
So we've got her view of secondhand in Hollywood. We've got night of January 16th, didn't work out. We've got working on The Unconquered, We the Living, definitely didn't work out. So why was she willing to sell the movie rights to the Fountainhead? And here, I think, is a, is a point that I had not fully appreciated for some time because I thought, well, wasn't it a kind of compromise? And the answer is the kind of compromise she would have minded and objected to and would never have done would have been cuts in the novel itself. That would not be okay with her. And she used to say that she was happy to accept advice from anyone of any type, you know, from the elevator person, as long as it was good advice. But she didn't want to take advice even from professionals if she didn't agree. And she was not going to change her fountainhead for anybody unless she agreed. And she thought that, you know, there are a lot of stories about this, about, you know, changes that she would not accept in her own writing. Because what she thought, you know, was that she did not want her work to be mutilated. But she thought that a movie would not destroy the book. The book was different. Selling the movie rights would not change the book. Cuts in her text, publishing a shortened version of the novel as if it were the actual novel, would mean that the mangled book would become the book. That would be it, okay? But a movie, she said, quote, nobody assumes that the movies are correct. You see, my form of adaptation by its nature is only an adaptation unquote, meaning that her kind of adaptation or anybody's adaptation is not going to replace the book. The book is still there. Quote, if you present a summary of a book, that's not changing it. It's just a summary. But present a cut version, and that's literally like Rourke's Cortland. That is destroying the work itself. So that's what she would not agree to do, cut version of the novel. She thought that that would hurt the book. But even a bad movie might be able to help the marketing of the book. As she put it, quote, at worst, it might come out as a mess, but the mere fact of having it on the screen would advertise the book so that no matter how they distorted it, it would help the book, unquote. Now, one could argue, is, you know, is, 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 is that true? But nonetheless, it's a point of view, and it's why, for her, selling the movie rights was different from having a cut version of the book. And she was not only willing, but she was eager. And why was that? Well, at the time of the offer from Warner Brothers, the novel was rising on the bestseller lists, but it sold no more than 18,000 copies. And she was worried. She did not approve of the ads Bob's Merrill had for the book because they had failed, for the most part, to identify the theme. Most of the reviews, even the positive ones, had missed the point. Lorene Pruitt, of course, was a notable uh, counterexample. Her review was good. But Ayn Rand was worried that the book was not going to find its audience, that the right audience wouldn't find the book, that Howard Rourke was going to vanish from view and from memory, and that she had indeed, as she put it in the novel, cast pearls before swine without getting even a pork shop in return. So she really wanted to advertise the book. She was looking for ways to increase the book's exposure, and she was even willing to pay for that. Bob's Merrill offered her a deal because, according to the original contract, her royalties were supposed to go up from 10% to 15% after the first 10,000 copies. And she was asked if she would agree to waive the royalties and to stay at 10, then they would, quote, match the amount of money and stage a big advertising campaign for the book. In other words, she was being asked to finance the advertising so that 
they could sell more copies, and she agreed immediately. As she later said, I would have given up all royalties. Okay, and that did increase the advertising. We had a big campaign of full-page ads. Again, not necessarily of emphasizing what she would have wanted to emphasize, but more exposure for the book. And remember I mentioned that she, was, she just got back from lunch when she found out about the phone call? Well, what was she doing at lunch? During this time, she had been getting in touch with businessmen, people she had gotten to know through the Wendell Wilkie campaign, presidential campaign, on which she and her husband had worked. And she was trying to get money put up by these men to advertise the Fountainhead properly, to advertise it as a pro-individualism, pro-capitalism book, unquote. Iron Man did not enjoy this. She hated the process, but she was doing it day after day, explaining once again the value of her book to businessmen who said they had no time for philosophy and that, in any event, books are of no importance in politics. Well, she'd been at one of those lunches when she got back and found out about the $50,000. And that meant not only that she had money of her own to advertise the book if she wanted, but she also had the movie itself to advertise the book. Okay, so, and not only that, but she was being asked to write the treatment. So this was good news, in spite of the reasons against it. Now, the one condition that Warner Brothers made was that she should come to Hollywood at their expense, they paid for the train, and give them, at no extra charge, four weeks of work on the adaptation with an additional two weeks at, you know, they'd pay for at their option. And she agreed to that. Warner Brothers, uh, they thought they were getting a freebie, something extra thrown in. Yeah, and she knew that writing the preliminary screenplay was a good way to get them to see that she could write a film and that she would then, you know, do, ultimately do the screenplay and that the preliminary would not be the end of the story, which, of course, is the way it worked out. So, originally, what's this idea about a preliminary screenplay? What she said, and I think that my... From what my reading, I think this is true, is that often writers were asked to do something like a preliminary screenplay, and sometimes they would not even get very far, because many novelists do not and cannot write drama. It's a different field. So the procedure was to ask the novelist to give it a try, and then they would say, well, I think we need to bring in someone who knows how to do state, you know, writing for the screen. Ayn Rand said, as a rule, they're very much opposed to hiring the original author because they always think that the author is too prejudiced or too close to the material, as they call it. The, I'm still Ayn Rand. The producer was intelligent enough to know that only the author could do this particular story, and he really wanted me from the beginning. That was Henry Blanky. But the reason they did it this way is that they have no way of knowing what a novelist will do as a screenwriter. And so they would always try, they sometimes would bring in the original author of a novel, but they would keep the author as a kind of consultant and assign some screen expert to do the actual screenplay with the author just helping, in effect, because they found that most novelists don't know the dramatic form. So that was the tradition. So they'd have no way of knowing. And then she said, I think Blanky probably knew from the nature of my writing that I know drama. But anyway, they had no production date set, and the first procedure is always you write a preliminary script, and then it goes through four or five rewrites thereafter by you or others before it's a final script. So what they wanted is to have me show them at least how one would adapt this kind of story, and then my future fate would depend on that. 
Okay, that's what she said. Now the question is, um, why did Henry Blanky think that she would write drama? You know, how did, did, did he know that she had tried working for Hollywood before? No, the actual reason is that he read the novel itself. And you will often hear movie makers saying, no, I didn't read the novel, I read a summary, I read a reader's guide or something. No, he read the novel itself because Barbara Stanwyck had brought it to him. So he'd read more than a synopsis, he'd read the novel, and he admired it, and he wanted to produce it, and he expected Ayn Rand to be able to write a screenplay. So, what happened next? You know, we've got the deal, we've got the money, we've got Blanky interested, and Ayn Rand and her husband Frank O'Connor took the train to Hollywood so that she could spend a few weeks, which ended up being longer, writing a screen treatment. Now, what were her concerns? One of them, of course, after her previous experiences, both on Broadway and in Hollywood, was that she wouldn't be able to have full control of the outcome. She knew that there were going to be a lot of other people involved. Trouble might be ahead, dealing with directors and actors and producers and censors and other, you know, legal censors and other kinds and various other artistic contributors or interferers and that she would be at the mercy of the wishes of others. And she figured that that was a problem, but that was a bridge she could cross later on. The other concern was more immediate. It was that compared with writing the novel, writing the screenplay was much less interesting, especially since she had just finished the novel. And if you looked at the pop-up exhibit yesterday, you, you, you might have noticed the word boring was featured. Um, I was simply going to say less interesting, but it, it amounts to the same thing because, you know, boring, you know, dealing with the fountainhead. But I can see how for her, after writing the fountainhead and the excitement of that, that, all right, now I've got to turn it, that thing into something else. And as she put it, I was so close to the period of having worked seven years to achieve that structure that now to tear it down was impossible. The better the integration, the harder it was for me to change it, unquote. And I think that's an interesting choice of words here, right? She's talking about building a structure and tearing it down. You know, Rourke would have known what she was talking about. This project was not what she ordinarily wanted to do. It felt, quote, it felt absolutely like a rehash of something and that my mind would be constantly fighting the fact that to tell it properly, one requires the form in which it was told, unquote. Now, rehashes, you know, is another favorite word of Ayn Rand's for something she doesn't like. Um, people who are bad writers, it's just a rehash, and she didn't want to be one of those rehash writers. And then there was something else. She thought that a story of the duration of 18 years was not the best movie material, especially when so much of the action in the first three parts of the novel is psychological. And as you will see, she chose in this screenplay, even the original one, and even more so in, uh, well, to, to shorten the span and to emphasize the part she considered to be the best movie material. Though she was, she said, sold on the fact that I would fight to the death to have that adaptation by me, unquote, and you might have seen that quoted in the exhibit yesterday, she found the task less than joyous, but she went to work with the support of Henry Blanky, the producer. Now, Blanky told her, as she says, not to aim at actual playing time, make it as long as you want to, because it's just first to see how it would read and play form, and to include the whole story, as much of it as possible. 
He wanted a small-scale direct version without translation into e equivalents, which of course pleased me that that's what he wanted, but it's very difficult. So the first version even included both trials. He was in love with the Stoddard Temple and wanted that included. All right, so we have some idea of what, what the problems were and some of what accounts for what, what we've seen, you know, get everything in, although as I'm sure you noticed, there are alterations in the language in the structure. So, here's some background as far as how she worked towards a solution of her problems, the problem of writing the screenplay. Because what she needed to do was to art, uh, articulate the integrating principle of her film and the way she would use it to inform, to shape the narrative events. So, to get this picture, the background, I'm actually going to go farther back to her early work on the novel, which I think will give us some context and contrast. So here are some of her notes for the novel from December 26, 1935, so long time earlier. And there she'd written as follows. Howard Rourke, the noble soul par excellence, the man as man should be, the self-sufficient, self-confident, the end of ends, the reason unto himself, the joy of living personified. Above all, the man who lives for himself as living for oneself should be understood and who triumphs completely, a man who is what he should be. And you see how this is a psychological, philosophical description. It actually doesn't say anything about architect because there's a sense in which Ayn Rand said, well, it's about architecture, but it's not really about architecture. It's about independence, about integrity. Okay, that's Rourke. Peter Keating, the exact opposite of Howard Rourke. He's one of the opposites, right? And everything a man should not be. A perfect example of a selfless man who is a ruthless, unprincipled egotist in the accepted meaning of the word. A tremendous vanity and greed which lead him to sacrifice all for the sake of a, quote unquote, brilliant career. A mob man at heart, of the mob and for the mob, his triumph is his disaster. Left as an empty, bitter wreck, his secondhand life, and secondhand lives was the original title, takes the form of sacrificing all for the sake of a victory which has no meaning and gives him no satisfaction because his means become his end. He shows that a selfless man cannot be ethical. He has no self and therefore cannot have any ethics. A man who never could be man as he should be and doesn't know it. Okay, that's Keating. You understand, this is the way she's describing the characters before she writes the book. And I think it's very interesting that these are the characters she, she wrote as she wrote the book. Okay. A great publisher, a man, that's Wynant, a man who rules the mob only as long as he says what the mob wants him to say. What happens when he tries to say what he wants? A man who could have been, man as he should be. And then there's Ellsworth Monkton Toohey. Noted economist, critic, and liberal, noted anything and everything, great humanitarian, and, quote, man of integrity, unquote. Glorifies all forms of collectivism because he knows that only under such forms will he, as the best representative of the mass, attain prominence and distinction impossible to him on his own merits, which do not exist. Right. The idol crusher par excellence, born organic enemy of all things heroic. So he's another opposite of Rourke, right? Has a positive genius for the commonplace. Worst of all possible, rats. A man who never could be man as he should be and knows it. 
So there, those are the characters, and in the novel, as we know it, there's a part name for each. And these characters were also the basis for the theme, as she'd identified it, same month, December 1935, a few days earlier. And one of the things, I'm not going to read you the whole thing, but one thing she wrote is just about this issue of the self. Until man's self regains its proper position, life will be what it is now, flat, gray, empty, lacking all beauty, all fire, all enthusiasm, all meaning, all creative urge. That is the ultimate theme of the book, Howard Rourke, as the remedy for all modern life. And I'm still reading you know, from her notes. The theme then goes like this. Howard Rourke is what all men should be. Show how and why others are different from him, what forms that difference takes, what reasons create it, what it does to its victims, their successes and their ultimate tragedies. And I show what life is to Howard Rourke, how he succeeds and what his success means. I think you can see that although Ayn Rand was sometimes, you know, she would write inspirationally, but she planned deliberately and articulately and very clearly. And she wrote more notes, okay? And in the notes that followed, she emphasized explicitly that Rourke is the opposite of collectivism, that what is ruining the world is secondhand lives and collectivism is a kind of secondhand uh, life. In playing the screenplay years later after the novel, she again goes back to a theme and refers to a principle and to the characters. And here's a note from December 13, 1943. So this is many years later with the Fountainhead actually having been written in the middle. And she wrote that the specific theme as presented in screenplay, and I'm going to read it to you, but it was actually, thanks for the warm-up act of the, 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 the box of documents, because this was one of the documents in there. She wrote, specific theme, independence as against obeying the wishes of others as against the social spirit, which is Keating, who tried to live by public polls, Wynand, who tried to use the mob, Tui, who consciously used collectivism for the purpose of gaining power and enslaving mankind. Therefore, Rourke's speech must summarize the above, give it a statement that the good is not the social, but the individual, not the herd instinct, but independence. To live for yourself or for others is an issue of the spirit. The choice between one's own judgment and the surrender of one's judgment between integrity and mental prostitution. The form of a society will be the result of this basic issue." End of quotation. So, we've got the four characters for whom the novel, the parts of the novel are named or described in terms of individualism. You know, the man of self-sufficient soul and three different varieties of secondhand lives. Now, when she's planning the film, she still has those varieties of second-handers, but I think you can see that she's really thinking much more of Rourke than she is thinking about Keating, who's a foil, or Tui, who, who is also a foil and an opposite. Right? So it's sort of as if uh, Howard Rourke is, he's always the center, he's the beginning, he's the end, he's all the way through, but as she's planning the film, she's really emphasizing him even more than she was in her plans for for, for the novel. You probably remember that in part three of the novel, he's a walk-on. You know, Howard Rourke is barely there. You know, Dominique gets off the train and sees him, but the rest of the time we've got wine. And I think if we had that much of a movie without Howard Rourke, it would seem odd. You know, like, why is the actor not, why is the performer not here? 
Okay, now I'm going to tell you about her, her summary of the progression of the screenplay, and I think you'll see what's included and what's not mentioned. Okay, general theme, man's integrity. Plot theme, Howard Rourke, an architect, a man of genius, originality, and complete spiritual independence, holds the truth of his convictions above all things in life. He fights against society for his creative freedom. He refuses to compromise in any way. He builds only as he believes. He will not submit to conventions, traditions, popular taste, money, or fame. Dominique Francon, the woman he loves, thinks his fight is hopeless. Afraid that society will hurt and corrupt him, she tries to block his career in order to save him from certain disaster. When the disaster comes and he faces public disgrace, she decides to take her revenge on the man responsible for it, Gail Winand, a powerful, corrupt newspaper publisher. She marries Winand, determined to break him. But Rourke rises slowly in spite of every obstacle. When he finally meets Winand in person, Dominique is terrified to see if the two men love and understand each other. Rourke's integrity reaches Winand's better self. Rourke is the ideal that Winand has betrayed in his ambition for power. Yeah, we, we know this because we've read the book, but you see how she's making explicit some things that might not be obvious to the people making the film, and they're, they're some of the people who need to know this. So, continuing with her notes, without intending it, Rourke achieves his own revenge by becoming Winan's best friend. Dominique finds herself suffering in a strange triangle, jealous of her husband's devotion to the man she loves. When Rourke's life and career are threatened in a final test, when he becomes the victim of public fury and has to stand trial, alone, hated, opposed, and denounced by all, Wynan makes a supreme effort toward his own redemption. He stands by Rourke and defends him. Wynan loses, defeated and broken by the corrupt machine he himself had created. But Rourke wins without his help by the power of his own truth. Rourke is acquitted and Dominique comes to him, free to find happiness with him, realizing that the battle is never hopeless, that nothing can defeat man's integrity. As you see, when she's writing up the plot theme, she doesn't even mention explicitly Keating or Tui, for whom the first two parts of the novel are named, and who are important as far as the philosophical background. But she did include them in the skeleton outline and also in the 203-page screenplay. So you see what's happened there as she's thinking about the plot theme. She is handling the structural problem of an adaptation by emphasizing even in this preliminary screenplay, the fourth part of the book, which she considers better movie material because it has more action. And she is very strongly emphasizing the Rourke-Dominique-Winand triangle, which, of course, in the final version of the script is even more salient. So, I think you already know that this preliminary 283-page screenplay was double the length of the final screenplay. In other words, double the needed length. And even this one uh, telescoped the early sections of the book, but did include, yeah, not only do we not have Howard Rourke appearing on stage in the nude, but we, we also didn't have you know, the, the early scenes of the novel you know, before the Manhattan Bank building. But the preliminary screenplay did include the episode of the Stoddard Temple, which was dropped from most later scripts. Okay, now I'm going to tell you about some of the virtues of the first script, some of which you've seen, 
Some of my examples will come from the first part and some from the second part, which you haven't seen. So one, I think, a strong aspect of that first script was the use of verbal and visual transitions that didn't exist in the novel. Here's some from the second part of the script. There's a dissolve from Dominique and Winand looking at Manhattan skyscrapers to their gazing from his yacht at the ocean. Okay, and here's another one, this again from the second part. Winand asks Rourke, where are those who compromised? What was their mistake? You know, this is when they're describing the issue of, you know, first-handers, second-handers. So we go from, where are those who compromised? What was their mistake? to Keating asking Tui about his own deterioration. What was my mistake, Ellsworth? What did I do wrong? So it's as if the earlier exchange is preparing us for the next one. And then there's this, and this one actually was preserved in the final film. Dominique asks Wynan not to give in. Yeah. Don't give in. And then we see Wynan being told by his board that he must give in, you know, that transition. So we've got transitions that hold the film together. And the original screenplay did include some wonderful scenes conveyed visually that, since we're on stage, we don't, we're not doing a film, we could not convey for you. We couldn't show them to you on a stage. But you would have seen this in the film as Ayn Rand originally planned it. We have a faint echo of it in the 1949 film. But I'm going to read you from the stage directions for the original screenplay, the scene in which Rourke returns to his office after saying no to the Manhattan Bank building. And I think it's very good, but I don't think we could quite do it without cameras moving in and so on. So here we go. Interior Rourke's office. Rourke enters, carrying his drawings under his arm. The office is a large bare room on the top floor of a tall building with a window that opens high over the city. Four drawings hang on the wall. The room contains nothing but the barest necessities, a desk, a large drafting table, one filing cabinet, a few chairs. It is a place that speaks of poverty, inactivity, a losing fight. Rourke looks down at the desk as he throws his drawings down. Close shot, the desktop. A pile of bills lies on the desk. We see an eviction notice from the landlord, a disconnect notice from the telephone company. Another from the Electric Light Company. The date on the bills is May 1928. Okay. Then we go up, up, you know, up one of the walls, and um, he turns to the window. He stands looking at the city, which is his love, his hope, and his enemy. There is no bitterness in his face, only a quiet, solemn challenge in the lift of his head. Then he turns abruptly away from the window. He walks to the drawings on the wall. Close shot, the four drawings. We see each drawing in turn as Rourke takes them off the wall. They're beautiful buildings, designed by a man of startling talent, modern but not modernistic. They are not bare boxes of the trite functionalist school, devoid of all imagination. They are truly original. They have ornament, but of a new design and derived from structure. Their simplicity is achieved by a daring um, modeling of masses, a complex interplay of structural features which make them look like sculptured compositions. And you know that she would have liked to have uh, Frank Lloyd Wright design all of this. The first drawing is of a house that rises in gradual steps on the side of a cliff with a terrace hanging over the sea. 
It is captioned, The Heller House. In the corner, there is a sharp, angular signature, Howard Rourke, and the date 1925. The next drawing is of a service station and diner, a composition in circles, captioned, Gowan Service Station, signed Howard Rourke, 1926. The next, Fargo Department Store, a modern, airy building, 1927. The last, the Sanborn House, a spacious country home that seems part of the garden surrounding it, 1927. So he takes each one down and the camera shows it to you. As Rourke takes the last drawing off and we see the empty wall, Rourke comes out of the office with a package under his arm and looks for a moment at the inscription on the glass door, Howard Rourke, architect. Then he takes a key out of his pocket, inserts it in the lock, camera moves to, close up, Rourke's hand. His hand stops for just one last second then turns the key with a swift gesture of finality, locking the door. Dissolve two. Close up, a man's hand pouring whiskey into a glass. It is an old gnarled hand and it trembles as it raises the glass. That's Cameron. It's pretty good, you know? Now, of course, when she started watching movies, they were silent and this is a silent movie scene, which is another reason why we, we didn't show it to you. But I think this, this would be very effective on the screen, that you actually see those drawings, you see his emotion, but under control, and then you see the connection to Cameron. Okay, so she had things like this, including to, in, in addition to, the, to what we were able to show you. Now I'm gonna tell you about another virtue, I think, of the original screenplay. She did not believe that she needed to retain every episode, or to allot proportional space to different sections of the book didn't need to be a clone of the book. She begins, as we see, with the Manhattan Bank building. And that means we don't have Rourke's conversation with the dean. Some of that language comes into the Manhattan Bank building scene. We don't have Rourke meeting Cameron, Rourke working for Franken, Rourke working for Snipe, and we don't have the Heller House episode, which I've always liked, but we get the drawing and we're moving on. It's gonna be, even what she's written is a four-hour film, and we don't really have time for the Heller House. Now, the Manhattan Bank Building episode, which I think is quite powerful here as an introduction, also does introduce not just Rourke, but Peter Keating, because he's the one who takes over that building after Rourke said no. So he is still here as a second-hander, even though he's not as prominent in the narrative as he is in the novel. He's less important to the story, Keating. We don't see him at Stanton. We don't meet his mother. There's no Katie in his life, he's not married to Dominique. And speaking of Dominique, after the episode of the Stoddard Temple, last night you heard um, Ayn Rand, uh, what Ayn Rand wrote for Dominique in terms of making a plan to marry Wynand. We heard the scene last night, and I think that that might have come as a surprise to, to some of you that, you know, she does take action in the novel after the Stoddard Temple, that's, that's when she makes her plan to marry Keating right now. But here, you know, I, I think that it's quite startling that she makes a plan to marry someone whom she's never met for philosophical reasons because of what he represents. I've never seen Gail Wynand, but I intend to meet him, to go after him, to marry him, and to make him pay for this. Now, Rourke, of course, tells her that he doesn't need her to marry someone else to make him pay for it. He doesn't need Wynand to pay for it. 
I do not wish anyone to pay for it. And she says she does, that he represents, you heard it, everything that's wrong with the world, and it's Gail Winant who must pay for it. And then she explains how she's going to live from now on, you know, saying Howard Rourke to herself and believing that she's earned the right to say it. And he, you, you saw this. Now, this, I think, would have been quite startling for an audience, what is going on here. On the other hand, I think that a performer can make it credible, especially when we've seen the performer in other actions with, with, with Rourke, that this is part of their story, and Rourke accepts it. You know, I, I, I won't ask you not to do it. I won't try to stop you. And then, you know, he embraces her and kisses her and walks to the door. And in the screenplay, you know, it stands looking at the door as it closes behind her. Okay. Now, I think, this is, I think that this is uh, striking. I can see why in the ultimate screenplay, the idea was to bring Wynand in earlier. And here we've had hints about him, but we haven't actually met him. But I think there's an interesting additional consequence of Wynand coming in later and of the Manhattan Bank building opening the film. Because Rourke dramatically refuses to give in even when he really needs the work and it's going to mean the quarry, but he doesn't want that building out there, his building, changed. So that's an introduction to Rourke and it's also, I think, a sharp dramatic contrast between Rourke and Wynand. Even when Rourke really needs that commission, or one could say so, he refuses to betray his building by yielding to the wishes of a board. And that contrast shows up dramatically with Wynand in the later part of the script because Wynand accedes to his own self-betrayal when he surrenders the banner to a board of people who, like those folks in the room at the time of the Manhattan Bank building, these people have no clue about his nature and motivation, and he gives in. Now, it's not exactly the same situation, but dramatically, you know, there he is, there they are. And I, it's one of the reasons, I think, that um, in this version, with the built Manhattan Bank and then the banner, his tragedy is very, Wine's tragedy, very poignant. And, in fact, he does embrace the justice of the suffering he has earned and will accept nothing from those who accept the best self he has betrayed. And here's something else I want to tell you from the original screenplay. Part of it is stuff you know. Rourke writes to him, come back, there will be another chance, and he tells his secretary to return the letter unopened. But that's not all. In the original screenplay, we see Dominique arriving at Winan's penthouse and being refused entry. He says, keep still, I don't want your forgiveness, I can't go back to you or to him. I don't deserve it. I don't want his pity or yours. Get out of here. All right. Now, I think that would have stopped the audience. Um, you know, but it's, it's, it, you know, it's, it's very striking. But a good actor could, could sell that. And, you know, that, that definitely means that he accepts that he's doesn't have, he's not giving himself the chance that Rourke wants to give him. And then there's a little more after that, which is somewhat familiar to you, but also a little different. Wynand, in the original screenplay, summons Rourke to his office to sign the contract for the Wynand building. Rourke listens, signs, goes to the door, and Wynand says, build it as a monument to that spirit which is yours and could have been mine. You know all that from the novel, and you hear it 
in the film as well. But in the original screenplay, there's a difference. Rourke, who is referred to Wynand throughout the scene as Mr. Wynand, says at the end, yes, Gail. Yes, Gail. Now, that's not in the novel. It's not in the 1949 film. But I believe Howard Rourke said it. Okay? That's the way that he finishes the scene. Okay. Got one more point to tell you, and then we'll, we'll, we'll have Q&A. And this is something that I especially like from the original screenplay, is the joy of work. And I think that we did see it in the performance last night, but I think it's also more present in the language than is the case in the ultimate screenplay. And it's everywhere in the novel. Speaking about, he does speak in the film about the need to love the doing, but where do we see it? In the original screenplay, which we didn't show you exactly what this was, we see the man's hand holding on to the model of the skyscraper, possessively. When Roger Enright comes to Rourke's office to take him to the party, we, we, we did see this, but it's, uh, you know, it's very, very prominent. She really wanted everyone to get it, that Rourke is working at the big drafting table. There is an air of tense, joyous energy in his whole person. And in the original screenplay, we were supposed to see that shot that was later captioned, are you happy now, Mr. Superman? But he's leaning back, his hands closed over the parapet, hatless, looking up at the building. It is an unposed, unconscious moment of exaltation. And we have, in the original screenplay, Rourke walking around during the construction of the Stoddard Temple and the line that you may remember from the novel, although not with the Stoddard Temple, about the guy's in love with the thing, he can't take his hands off it. Okay, that, and, you know, in, in the novel, that's the, the Heller House in chapter 11. So I think we've got a lot in the original screenplay about the joy of work. One last point about something that you don't see in the screenplay, and then actually I wondered if I was going to talk about it, but some people asked me, so I'll say it. You might have wondered if Ayn Rand changed her script because Hollywood objected to her philosophical content. You might have wondered if the first script was too didactic, too explicit, too on-the-nose philosophical to be suitable. No, in fact, Ayn Rand had already adapted the language to fit the screen rather than the novel. She didn't think that every scene or every word of her novel needed to be up there on the screen. She knew that this film was going to have speeches, but not every dialogue had to be a speech. So, one of the most memorable lines from the novel is Rourke's response when, after his refusal of the Manhattan Bank building, Wheedler asks him why he had to be so selfless. Rourke in the novel replies, all together now, that was the most selfish thing you've ever seen a man do. But in the script, he doesn't say that. Ayn Rand saw that novel, that, that language, that answer is completely right for the novel. She certainly wouldn't have taken that out, but not something that was right for the screen. Among other things, you have to sit and think about it for a minute. And also, in the original screenplay, she didn't have a, a sympathetic Wheedler character. Actually, he's something of a Wheedler, right? But he's W-E-I-D-L-E-R, who has been trying to get the building for Rourke and is frustrated. Okay, so what happened after this preliminary screenplay? She kept working on it. She shortened it by about 100 pages within a year. And then several years after that, it's going into production. And at that point, all these other changes that you're familiar with happened. Stoddard Temple is out. Stanton is back in, 
calendar pages are there to render passage of time. There's you know, ver various other changes that, that you're familiar with from the final film, including Wynand showing up much earlier in the story, you know that from the 49th film, and Tui showing up in a different context. So that's when the structure changed to make Tui the sinister presence, to introduce Wynand earlier. And this version was accepted. There were some negotiations about the speech. And people liked what she had done. And well, it, it did ultimately, that, that's a whole other story about some of the controversy about the speech, but it was ultimately filmed. But for today, I'm just going to open it up to Q&A, and I can tell you more if you want to know more about you know, some lovely scenes within the screenplay. But I also want to go by the questions that you have. So thank you for now, and let the questions begin. Thank you. Uh, Zack Snyder was planning a Fountainhead movie, I believe, but I think it's been postponed or canceled, I'm not sure. Uh, do you think that he might have been able to do it justice, or would he have butchered it, or what do you think? Okay, all right, well, you're, you're asking about Zack Snyder, and I don't have a lot of first-hand knowledge about that. I'll say a couple of things. One is I'm not sure what's... He did get rights from Warner Brothers, and I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know exactly how the rights work, but that is was uh, you know, one issue with this, that this is not Ayn Rand's uh, screenplay that she wrote for, that was filmed by Warner Brothers, it's different. I don't know what Zack Snyder was gonna work with. Whether, I don't think it was gonna be a four hour version like this, but I don't know. So I, I think uh, you know, he's a director, and if he's also the writer, then he'd have some impact on that. I don't know what he would wanna do. You probably know that Michael Cimino, who died not too long ago, he was gonna do The Fountainhead, and he apparently had, you know, piles of paper about how he would do it in a room that you could barely get into because it was so crowded. So basically, I don't know. I think that the script's important, the director's important, and the producer's important, and what's the money behind it, and what actors are we going to get. So basically, I don't know. I do remember hearing he was going to do it, and then hearing, no, it's off, no, it's on. So I don't know. But I do think that it would be, if, if he's actually going to do it, it would be useful for him to say what his script's going to be, because, oh golly, there have been some really bad Fountainhead scripts over the years, you know, that didn't even have architecture in, I mean, yeah, um, I don't know, but, but uh, so, so there, 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 there have, have been some bad scripts out there, I don't know what he was planning to do, or if there were going to be superheroes involved, you know, I mean, yeah. <laughs> Are you happy now, Mr. Superman? And he flies in. <laughs> so, so essentially, I'm, I'm, I'm not up on that. Um, but if I were going to find out, I'd, I'd want to know what's happening. With the, what, what's the script going to be? Good morning, Shoshana. Thank you for sharing your knowledge with us. Um, so I had a question about one of the last things you mentioned with Howard Rourke's line about you know, being selfish, and I was just wondering why Rand didn't think that would work on screen. Well, um, again, I, don't, I can't read her mind, but what I know for sure is that uh, she's the one who didn't put it in the script, you know, so that it wasn't anybody else's idea. And it's not that she had a problem with the word selfish, because we heard it last night, you know, when she's talking to Mallory, but I think as far as buttoning off the scene, there's no Wheeler there for him to say it to. Oh, I see. And so why is he, 
you know, there's no one saying, why do you have to be so selfless? And then the repost to that is what he says, and that whole conversation is not actually there. And let's face it, it's already, you know, would slow things down, and what we really want, I think, is to get Rourke out of there with his drawings and back to his office, rather than making a speech. Uh, it's also, and I'll just add this, because th this, this I know, that Ayn Rand was concerned about the question of Rourke knowing too much and making speeches too early in the story. This was a question she had about the scene with the dean. If he's already got all of this, then what else does he need to learn and to articulate? On the other hand, you know, it's, I think it, it's interesting for us philosophically, and then we can say, what does selfish mean, and so on. But dramatically, it's part of an interchange with Wheedler, who is not really a character for us in the scene as filmed. I could almost imagine it as something he'd say to himself if someone said something rather than out there, but she just chose to move on. What I wanted to basically tell you was that it wasn't that someone else made her take it out, and that in her thinking about the story, that scene was intended to show Rourke, no, you know, no changes, not for any reason, not for any of your reasons, only for reasons of mine, and I don't have any reasons to change it. So that was the point of the scene dramatically. But Thank you. If she were here, I'd ask her, you know, hey, what happened here? But um, that's my guess. In relation to adaptations, and uh, Coppola, in his, uh, he wants to do a film called Megapolis, and it's supposedly some of it is inspired by the Fountainhead. And I'm wondering if you know of any of the, anything about that. And also, if there's, second question is if there's uh, versions of the script available to purchase or look at, uh, those are my two questions. Okay, all right, well, I, I'm not familiar with, um, with Coppola's project. There was, there was a novel called Cosmopolis, but that, um, that sounded to me as if the, the writer had been familiar with The Fountainhead, but I don't know about Megalopolis. As far as copies for purchase, I'm not familiar with sort of legal printed copies that are out there. I think that uh, copies of the screenplay left the lot and, um, and were copied. I've seen bootleg operations that have copies of the final script, and I've also seen transcripts where people just write down all the subtitles. But the original script, that's not available for purchase that legally. And there are copies, of course, in the Iron Man archives and at the University of Wisconsin in the film library there. That's where there are several different versions. And I looked at those, and I looked at what we have in the archives, and it's pretty much the same, but not, not for purchase. Can uh, ARI members look at the archive or, or go to the archive? Okay, well, I think you'd have to ask the archives people yes. about that, but, um, you know, they're, they're there, they're protected. Yes. In view of Ayn Rand's opinion of Hollywood, um, why did she decide to take a day job as a screenwriter? Okay, well, I'm sort of reminded of something that an actor once said to a, a director once said to an actor who says, what's my motivation here? And the director said, your salary. Uh, 
which I think is, that's a pretty good answer, you know, that, it, uh, that, that uh, she knew several languages, and so that was, um, that was a good source of income for her because she could take on a number of different uh, synopses. She didn't like to sew, but she worked in the wardrobe, you know, handing out costumes and so on. She needed a day job until the Fountainhead, she needed a day job, until here, you know, with the rights, she needed a day job. Even when she had a contract for writing the Fountainhead, it didn't cover all the months, and she still needed to work on something else during that time. So, and that was, you know, work that she could do, and it paid reasonably well, and it wasn't quite as bad as working in a quarry. Um, after the rights for the fountain, just saying, you know, after the rights for the Fountainhead were sold, now she had money and she was not going to have to do that again. But she didn't see it as a, as a corrupt job to read a book and to explain what its qualities were. Okay, I think I can take another question, and then I have one more thing to do. Yeah. Uh, when she wrote this longer treatment, did she just stay at home in Chatsworth and write it and then deliver the final product, or was there back and forth? Did she work any in the studio? How self-contained was the creation? Sure. Okay, well, I don't have the dates in my memory, but maybe, you know, we've, we've got people from the archives here, or I could look in the finding aid, but she sent in installments. And so, and then you add them all together, and I added up to, up to 283, which is, I believe, also what Jeff said. Um, to it, you know, so it was several installments adding up to 283. So in installments, but then it basically goes away for some period of time, and then a year later she has shortened it. And then after that, when the film is going into production, now we've got input from Blanky and King Vidor and the calendar and cameras throwing around the newspapers of the banner. So, so those things all happen later. So first there are the installments, then there's, yeah, one minute. Okay, first there are the installments, then there's um, the shorter version within a year, and then before the film actually gets filmed, there are more changes that were not entirely her idea. So she didn't get a lot of interference or feedback during this time. Okay, I've been told that I've got one minute, and I did want to do one thing in the one minute, and that was, since I have been commenting on negative aspects of the final film as opposed to the original screenplay, I did want to read you something that is in the film and is in the novel, but that was not part of the original screenplay, which did have other aspects of Rourke's speech, but not this. And this is Rourke. Our country, the noblest country in the history of men, was based on the principle of individualism, the principle of man's inalienable rights. It was a country where a man was free to seek his own happiness, to gain and produce, not to give up and renounce, to prosper, not to starve, to achieve, not to plunder to hold as his highest possession a sense of his personal values and as his highest virtue, his self-respect. Look at the results. Happy Fourth of July. Thanks for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to einran.org.